Good day, everyone. Uh, lovely to see you. Uh, let me pray, uh, and then we'll uh, look at this passage together. Uh, Father, thank you uh, that you are a speaking God. Uh, you speak through your word. Uh, we pray that this morning, uh, no matter um, what our mornings, our weeks, or maybe even our lives have been like as we come here to, uh, to, to look into what you say, that your spirit would work powerfully in our hearts, uh, that we would not leave here uh, unchanged, but um, changed, transformed, uh, knowing you, loving you better, uh, or maybe for the first time coming to know and love you as, as saviour, as king. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Dave. Excuse me. Just as I do this, Julie, that was a terrific Bible reading. Wowzers. You are very gifted at that. Um, now, for, uh, uh, for the last four weeks or so, we've been looking at the book of Job, and I hope you've been enjoying it. Enjoying is the wrong word, isn't it? Uh, it it's not... Well, I've had a difficult experience with Job, a complicated history with Job uh, for, for much of my life. I grew up in a, uh, in a Christian family, uh, and uh, uh, when I was a child, I must have been four or five. The church that I went to decided, in their wisdom, uh, to write music for and put on a production of Job the Musical. Um, I've been telling Trevor about it for ages, but he's, he's not going for it. Um, it wasn't a chirpy experience to sit through, and that was just the music, let alone the content of what was happening. But I remember one thing above all else, the character who played Job, um, and if you, sorry, if this is your first week with us, or uh, if you're just joining us uh, on the stream, Job, the book of Job, uh, tells uh, in large part the story of a man called Job who goes through tremendous suffering. Uh, he loses everything. Uh, and, and one of the things that happens is he ends up with a terrible skin disease that's uh, incredibly painful. So, in their wisdom, uh, whoever was produ producing this musical at my church, uh, uh, they, they put makeup on the main guy for most of it, and that makeup involved a flesh-coloured swimming cap um, and splotches of blood red all over him. My family was so conservative, we wouldn't watch Sesame Street, okay? Uh, I didn't see a PG movie till I was 22, and that was The Princess Bride. What a film. It freaked me out. It was like watching a horror movie for little four-year-old me. I was like, and I thought, I don't want to... Mm -mm, no, 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 no. You know there's people who do enjoy watching horror films. Is that you? There's people who actually enjoy... What is wrong with you? Just They take enjoyment of watching things that terrify them. That's how I felt about Job as a child. Why would I... Now, even though I grew uh, up in a Christian family, I didn't become a Christian until I was in my late 20s. Um, and I remember uh, reading the book of Job, or trying to read the book of Job early on in my Christian uh, faith, and having a kind of similar, less physical, but similar experience. I found the content of what Job said, the book, um, so dark and, and confronting and complex uh, that I just I put it in the, the too hard basket. I said, mm -mm, no, no, no. I didn't enjoy it at all. But uh, over the past 12 years of being a Christian, uh, something has changed. Uh, and it's not Job, it's, it's me. You see, um, the worst suffering I've gone through in my life has happened 
since being a Christian. Um, being a Christian has not um, put a force field around me that stops bad things happening. I've had really, really painful things happen in my life. Um, and I've had friends go through horrible things, bury their children, bury their spouses, face illness and disease and, um, and death. And in the midst of all of that, I on my own and with others have had many times of, of, of wrestling with, with confusion and, and even anger and, and looking up at God and asking a question which is right at the centre of what Job faces head on. The question is, why? Why? God, why? Why do you let good people suffer? What have I done to deserve this? And as I've um, read Job uh, over the years, and, and I want to say, really particularly this series that we've been looking at, I've been profoundly helped by it. Um, one of the things I've most appreciated is that Job doesn't do pretend. The book of Job doesn't do pretend. Um, it goes straight at it. Why do we suffer? Why does Job suffer? Um, what is God doing in it? And it's that question uh, that we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, in the midst of Job's agony and suffering, as I hope you heard read so beautifully by Julie there, um, Job confronts difficult and deep questions. Um, but I believe through the entire book, we're not going to look at one passage today, but several, uh, we see profound and, and, and very, very helpful answers that Job provides for us in the midst of, of trial and suffering for us. So um, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to uh, be seeking to answer the question, why? Why do we suffer? What is God doing? And, and the way I want to do it is I want to look at several of the perspectives that the book of Job offers to us, right and wrong. Several of the worldviews uh, that we encounter, uh, and then uh, step back, try and assess what they're saying, uh, and, and tie them up together. Um, but I must warn you as well that there is a twist. Uh, there is a twist coming uh, through these perspectives um, that changes everything. Everything, not just about how we view and read Job, but actually how we read our own lives, uh, how, we, how we live our lives. So um, open up to Job chapter 8. That's where we're going to start today. And the first perspective I want to point out to you, and we have looked at this one over the last few weeks, but it's worth hitting again, is the perspective, the worldview of suffering that's offered by Job's friends. If you don't know the narrative, Job, in the midst of his suffering, is joined by several friends who come to comfort, and that's inverted commas, comfort him. They come to give him solace in the midst of his pain and his suffering. Yet... What happens as they do so is they reveal a worldview, they reveal a system of thought, which is the most commonly held system of thought about suffering back thousands of years ago, but also held today. Um, and they, they reveal this to Job as a reason why he's suffering in an attempt to comfort him. And yet as they do so, uh, well, you can see the response. Chapter 8, verse 3 to 4 is just one example of, of this this system of thought, uh, but I think it's most vividly shocking. This is a man, Job, who's lost his children, 10 of his children killed. And this is uh, his friend Bildad. Uh, this is what he says to him as he presents the reason that he thinks it happens. Chapter 8, verse 3. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert 
what is right. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Pause there. Job, good things happen to good people. Bad things subsequently, therefore, must happen to bad people. Your children died because they sinned. It's a punishment of their sin. Verse 5. But if you will seek earnestly, God earnestly, and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now, he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. The advice given to Job by Bildad is very, very simple. Um, Bad things have happened to you because you've been doing bad things. However, if you turn around, apologise to God, and dedicate yourself now to doing good things well, not only is your suffering going to cease, but you will prosper. You will actually become more abundantly powerful and, and wealthy than you were before. Now, this worldview that Bildad presents actually is presented again and again and again as a continual system of thought by Job's friends. And it's actually the worldview that Job once held simply says, what goes around, comes around. Graham talked about it last week, that you might have heard it referred to as karma. Um, that what you did in a previous life, in, in some other religions say, if you did these things in a previous life, you'll pay the consequences for it in this life. But of course, there's a casual Aussie version of it, which is, oi, you get what you get. And then my mum would say, and you don't get upset. She said that to me as I was crying after watching Job the musical. You get what you get. What goes around comes around. Good things happen to good people. Now, in our culture, we only generally use that when good things happen. If someone has something pleasant happen in their life, we'll say something affirming, like, Oi, the universe is rewarding you. You're a good guy. You're a good girl. This has happened because of that. However, we generally tend to veer away from this. We're not intellectually consistent, morally consistent. We veer away from it in the face of suffering, don't we? We don't say it when people have bad things. However, if we are to be intellectually consistent, as Job's friends are... Well, if good things happen as a result of being good, well, bad things must therefore happen as a result of being bad. Now, Job himself once agreed with this worldview, and yet now, now in the face of the suffering he faces, he rejects it. And in fact, I want to say, um, this is a long book. Most of it taken up in interactions Job has with his friends. And most of those interactions are about his rejection of this worldview because it is such a powerfully common one. It's held by every other religion, a form of it, and it's held by most people that I know even today. Come to chapter 12, and I want to show you just an illustration of Job's rejection, an illustration of why Job rejects this point of view. Chapter 12, verse 4 and verse 6. Let me read this for you, chapter 12. This is Job replying to one of his other friends, but on the same topic. Job says, I have become a laughingstock to my friends, though I called on God and he answered. A mere laughingstock, though righteous and blameless. Job is a good man. Job is a righteous, a godly man. He's moral with integrity. And yet not only has he suffered, his friends mock him. He's a laughingstock. But then look at verse 6. The tents of marauders are undisturbed. And those who provoke God are secure, those God 
those God has in his hand. Job, as a good man, receives mockery and laughter. But these other people, robbers, evildoers, godless, they are at peace, they are secure, they prosper. Now, even though his friends, when they hear Job make this sort of responses, they say, Job, no, 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 you must have some sort of secret sin. We know what they don't know. We know, as we saw a few weeks ago, that in Job chapter 1, God gives a moral assessment of Job. Now, this is what he says in chapter 1, verse 8. God describes Job as blameless. And blameless doesn't mean he's without sin. He's not perfect. It means he has integrity. He's authentic. He's an authentic believer. He loves God. He loves people as a result of his loving God. Now, Job knows that. We know that. So what are we confronted with in the face of this system of thought which says what goes around comes around? Very simple. It's not true. It's evidentially not true. You and I know in our experience of life, this cannot be true. We all know good people who've suffered horribly. We all know godly people, people who've earnestly sought to love God in their lives, taken in their youth. And yet the opposite? Well, let me put it this way. Here's a, here's a brief summary. Um, Joseph Stalin and Chairman Mao are the two worst mass murderers in history, responsible for the death of over 100 million people in the 20th century. They both died of old age, in their beds, surrounded by friends and family, in decadence and opulence. In the face of suffering, what goes around cannot stand. What goes around doesn't seem to come around, not in this life. Now, I want to say, just, just pause there for a moment. That's the first perspective and worldview that we see offered through Job, the system of thought which says what goes around comes around, good things happen to good people. But we know Job, Job knows that can't be true because I'm a good person, I'm a godly person, and I am suffering. And so what we then see is Job's perspectives begin to come through as he wrestles with the experience of his life. The truth dawns on Job, how can this previous system of thought that I held to be true when my life has contradicted it? Now Job is in anguish, and one of the most powerfully profound things that you notice as you read through Job is just the authenticity of his suffering. He, just, he, he cries out to God, he cries out in agony and anguish. What we see emerge, and we had it read to us in chapter 9, I'll ask you to go there now, Job chapter 9, um, so powerfully, I don't know if those words struck you as they were read, but what we noticed as we read chapter 9 was that Job's realisation that what goes around comes around isn't actually true leads, leads him to a terrifying and terrible worldview. One that he doesn't end with, but one that he wrestles with in the middle of his pain. Have a look at verse 22 to 23. Chapter 9, verse 22 to 23. This is Job speaking about God. It is all the same. That is why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, then who is it? If God is in control, 
And if he is making me suffer without cause, then is it possible that God is not good? That God is in heaven laughing at the despair of humanity, you see there, like a cruel tyrant. God is a monster. And that means that all the pain and all the suffering and all the trauma and all the heartache and all the tragedy is simply what it seems to be on face level. Evidence of a God who does not care for us at all. Now, as I said, Job doesn't finish on that position. But it is worth identifying because it is a powerfully prevalent one in our community. By that I mean to say that worldview, as well as the first one, is actually commonly held. These are both untrue positions. And that's part of the complexity with Job, isn't it? I remember reading it as a, as a new Christian, and I really didn't know the Bible very well. I was, um, I was reading it for the first time as an adult, and I could never tell what was true and what wasn't. Have you experienced that in Job? Like, is this... Is God a tyrant? Have I missed this? You know, I was never sure what was going on. Now, Job is reflecting on, on how he's feeling. As Jez said a few weeks ago, though, this is, he's in the family and he's, he's, he's making um, uh, uh, sort of claims and thoughts about God, articulating thoughts in the midst of anguish. We need to understand his perspective from where he's coming from. But the problem with both of these perspectives is not that they're untrue, that is the problem with it, but one of the other problems with it is that they contain elements of truth within them. Both the first worldview, what goes around and comes around, and the second, that God is a monster, have a powerful truth that they agree upon, which is that whatever is happening, let us all agree that God is in control of it. Do you see that there? If what goes around comes around is true, well, God is the one who dictates that. If actually the suffering is just God being a tyrant, just laughing, well, again, God is in charge of those things. Now, it's important we recognise that that is an absolutely crucial truth. It's what we call God's sovereignty. God is the king. God is the one in control. But... Even though both of these perspectives do have elements of truth within them, they also have elements of deep, deep error. And we know that for sure. Why? Well, come back to chapter 1, and we'll spend some, most of our time here in, in chapter 1 again. But Let me point out the third worldview, if you like, the third perspective on suffering that we're offered. Um, not the one of Job's friends, not the one of um, Job, but... The one of God. We know what Job doesn't know. Because here in chapter 1, we're given insight to what takes place in the heavens. In, heaven, in the courtroom of heaven, if you like. In an interaction between God and Satan. You see in verse 8 of chapter 1, God gives this wonderful description of Job's character. That he is blameless. There is no one like him. But have a look at verse 9 and verse 10. Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago, but let me say it again. Satan scoffs at the description of Job's righteousness. And he says, does God fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him? In other words, Satan accuses Job's faith of being completely present only 
Because his life is easy, his life is good, his life is abundant. It's no surprise that he's so righteous and blameless. After all, his life has been just abundantly given a million things by you. Now this interaction, chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, is absolutely key to our understanding of suffering in Job and suffering in our own lives. It's, I, I want to point out two things. One we've had pointed out, but the second one is new. First one. Whilst you might think that this interaction is Satan accusing Job of a weak faith, that's not what's going on here. This is Satan accusing God. God of not being worthy of glory. He's saying, God, the only reason Job loves you is because you give him stuff. Take away what you've given him, mate, he will walk away. He's a fair weather friend. You're not worthy of following in the midst of trialing and, and, and tragedy. But here's the second thing I want you to notice, and, and this, is, this is the key one I want you to focus on today. Look at verse 8. Why is Job, of all people on earth, selected for suffering? From all the people on the planet, why him? It's not because he's bad. In fact, it's the opposite. It's precisely because he is good that he is selected for suffering. His righteousness is his qualifying feature. His blamelessness is what brings him to the attention. And indeed, who is it that brings him to the attention of Satan? It's God. It's because of his innocence that God allows evil to fall upon him. Now, why would God do that to a blameless person? Oi, you know, you might look around you. Not here, of course, we're, we're all terrific, but think about work or someone you look, well, well, he probably did something. Something bad happens. Well, she probably did, you know. But why? None of us can argue with the, the qualifying feature of Job. God himself says Job is blameless. Why would God do that to a blameless man? To show that Satan's accusation is false. To prove that he, God, is worthy of glory. Now, the correct term here, and this is a word we don't use that often, but the correct term is vindicate. Have you heard that word before? Vindicate. It's a legal term, and it means to clear someone's name of a false accusation. If someone is vindicated, their, their, their name has been cleared of a false accusation. So how can Job vindicate God? How does Job's suffering vindicate the accusation that God is unworthy of glory? Well, as you continue to read through Job, you realise it's through his perseverance in faith through suffering. By proving that his faith and love for God remains, regardless of circumstance and situation, he proves that God is worthy of honour and praise no matter what. It's his perseverance that leads to God's vindication. Now, take a step back for a moment, and when you consider the, the, you know, the 42 chapters that we have here in Job, this incredibly long book, it's called the book of Job. But this book is primarily not about Job. 
It's about God. This is a book about God and his glory. Why? Because God's glory is what matters most to him. The book of Job reveals for us a truth that may be caustic, it may, be, it may catch in your throat, it may make you irritated and uncomfortable, but the truth is clear when you see it. That at the centre of the universe is God, the one true living God who created all things, whose primary purpose is not our happiness, but his glory. Now, that may be a very, very different view on God that you've ever had before, a very different thought about God. Because I want to say, and I think I've been a perpetrator and a victim of this, Christianity, the term that we've been using is popular Christianity, if you like, has produced a version of God which is a kind of Walt Disney version. God is equal parts genie from Aladdin, equal parts the... the the, the, the Chippy from Pinocchio, what's his name? Uh, Giuseppe, what is it? Giuseppe? Geppetto. Geppetto. Something, that guy, you know the one. The old guy. God grants wishes. He offers sage advice. He might teach you a lesson, but the end result is that you will live happily ever after. The fairy tale of following God. This view of God, which is incredibly common within Christianity, insinuates that God's life, God's existence, God's purposes revolve around you, revolve around me. And he's like, he's like genie in, in, in Aladdin, you know. He just, he's waiting, anxious, desperate to be asked to do something. He's locked away in this little jar. He just wants someone to... Pick me, pick me. Yet that is just not the picture of, of God that we have in Job. It's not the picture of God that we have in the entire Bible. Job reveals to us a completely different worldview. The book of Job reveals to us that at the centre of the universe, God's primary concern is his own glory, not our happiness. What goes around doesn't come around. God is not a monster. The reality is that God allows suffering, allows an innocent man to suffer, to vindicate his glory. But, as significant a realisation as that may well be for you today, I want to make it clear that it doesn't end there. There is a twist here in the worldviews that we've seen, a twist actually that's already been present in, in one of the readings that we've had, a different way of viewing what takes place in Job that changes everything. Come back again if you were with me, chapter 1, chapter 1, and, and I want you to just... Um, As you read chapter 1, verse 1 to 8, and you read the description of Job at the beginning, um, of, of all, and if you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, it gives this sort of biographical snapshot of Job, of the abundance of his, his wealth and, and, and prosperity. He's a billionaire, the ancient equivalent of a, of a billionaire. Okay? Um, he, he's the greatest man in, in his region. You become aware that this is an extreme book, isn't it? It's an extreme book. Job is extravagantly rich. He's wonderfully happy. He's extremely great. He's not just one from a group of really great people. He's the greatest of all people in his region. But then his downfall is 
equally extreme. He goes from absolute riches to extreme destitution, extreme poverty, and not gradually. It's not like the stock market slowly crashing. It's in one day. He has 10 children and they all die. Not gradually, but in a horrifying accident in one day. What that means is that however our suffering mirrors Job's, it's unlikely that we ever come close to what Job is going through. We've neither been as rich as him or as poor, as, as godly, as pious, or as cursed. So my question is for you, why are we told all of this detail? In other words, this is intentionally placed here in the book of Job. Why are we told what we're being told? Well, the purpose is to point us to a fulfilment greater and deeper than your life or my life. Job, in his extremity, is actually but a shadow of a reality that is more extreme by far. Of a man who was not just the greatest man in a region, but the greatest human being in history. Of a man who suffered Even though he wasn't just blameless, he was sinless. The story of Job is a shadow of the greatest story of Jesus Christ. Now, when you see that in Job, you see many connections between the life of Jesus and the life of Job, between the suffering of Jesus and the suffering of Job. But there's one particular place that I want to show this to you, one particular connection um, that changes everything about life. And it's, and it's actually at the point of the greatest anguish and the greatest pain of Jesus' life, which was his death. The second reading we had was from Romans chapter 3, and I'll ask you to go there now. And I, I want to show you something about the death of Jesus, which um, uh, a theme, a, 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 an understanding, a comprehension of what's taking place in Jesus' death, which, which may be new, to you. Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Now, just before we look at that, um, I want to remind us of the story. Of course, many of us know it. Many of us are familiar with the story, but we can never hear it too many times. Jesus Christ was sinless and perfect in every way, obedient to his Father in heaven. He was love personified, love in how he loved God and love in how he loved others. And yet, despite his sinless perfection, despite his obedience and his glory and his generosity and his kindness, People hated him. Jesus was arrested and put on trial. And despite his perfect innocence, or indeed because of it, he was found guilty. He was tortured and mocked. He had his hands and his legs, his feet nailed onto a wooden cross. Bang! Bang! Jesus was killed. Crucifixion has been called by those who saw it in the ancient world the most brutal way to kill a human being. People died by inches, slowly life dripping away from them, a combination of exposure to the elements and asphyxiation, all while facing the death of the soul 
as they face public humiliation and public shame. The death of Jesus is the most famous death in history. But why did he die? Now your answer may be, particularly if you've been in church circles for any period of time, well, he died to save sinners. Amen. Yes. Hallelujah. Yes. But that's not the only reason. Let me go further. That's not the main reason. Job's suffering foreshadows something else happening in the life of Jesus. Now, let me read for you Romans 3, 25 to 26. And I'll just read it um, section by section because it's a, it's, a, it's a complicated thought. Not complicated, a new thought maybe for us that, um, that needs to take time. Let me read to you the first section of it. Job presents, sorry, beg your pardon, Job. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. So the thing I want you to notice there is who was it that presented Jesus for death? The Romans? The Jews? Judas? No, no, no. God. The death of Jesus was not an accident. It was according to God's plan. It was God who shed the blood of his son. The book of Isaiah says that God crushed his own son, even though he was innocent. Now, of all the people on earth, why would God choose to treat his own son, his perfect, obedient son like that? Not because he's bad, but because he's perfect. Why? Let me keep reading. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God sent Jesus to die for what purpose? To prove that God was righteous. God sent Jesus to die to display, to put on display his glory. Now, why would God have to do that? Because of sin. Just like Satan accuses God of being unworthy of glory in his interaction with Job, sin accuses God of the exact same. Sin is a rejection of God and his authority and and a rejection of his word and his power. Sin tarnishes the glory of God. It says, you are not worthy of my obedience. God hates sin. And in the Old Testament, very clearly, he makes clear, and in the new, he makes clear that the punishment for sin was death. And yet, what do we learn? Because he was patient, because of his mercy and kindness, he left the sins of his people before Jesus go unpunished. And so his righteousness was called into question because he had not punished the sins of his people before Jesus. So, what did he do? Verse 25 he sent Jesus to die, shedding his blood. Who killed Jesus? Well, on the cross, God poured out his wrath on his own son. The wrath that sin deserves emptied out on Jesus. Verse 26. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus died to take the punishment that sin deserved so that God could be vindicated. What was considered to be the most grotesque and horrific way of killing a human being was actually the high point 
Everest of God's glory on display as his justice and his mercy was displayed. The cross killed not just sin, but the accusation that sin made that he was unworthy of glory. Now, I understand that's um, potentially a complicated line of thinking, but I, I want to try and join the lines and the dots between Job and, and Jesus here. Let me draw these threads. What does all of this mean? Why does Job suffer? Because he's good. For what purpose? For God's glory, to vindicate his name. The book of Job is not primarily about Job, it's about God's glory. Why does Jesus suffer? Because he's good. For what purpose? For God's glory, to vindicate his name. So the cross of Christ is primarily about God. Not me. Not you. At the centre of the universe is God whose primary concern is not our happiness, but his glory. He's so committed to that, he sent his own son to die. Now, I want to say, just as we finish here, I know that that's a very confronting and hard truth, and it calls into question the goodness of God, doesn't it? If God allows innocent people to suffer, can he really be good? After all, if you and I were so obsessed with our own reputation and our own glory, our, our own honour, that we were willing to let other people suffer in order to attain it, we would not think that was good, would we? We would think that was the opposite. We would think that was evil and selfish and narcissistic. And we would be absolutely right. Because when we glorify ourselves, we do it at the cost of others. When we boast and put ourselves first, we do it by robbing other people. We cause hurt and harm. But that is not what's going on with God's glory at all. You see, the cross is not just the story of undeserved suffering of an innocent person. It's also simultaneously telling a different story, a story about you and a story about me, no matter who you are here today. The cross is a story not just of undeserved suffering. It's the story of undeserved grace. The cross is the story of God being both just and justifier. For God to be just, he must be perfect. Someone must pay for sin. But God also desires to justify those who have sinned. The cross vindicates God from the, 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 the accusation of sin, but the cross also vindicates us. It clears away our sin. In the death of Jesus, we see God's goodness, God's kindness, God's graciousness, God's mercy, God's ever-present, relentless love. More on display than anywhere else. He makes his name righteous and he makes those who've spent nothing but their entire lives rejecting his name, also righteous. And that means that God's glory and his goodness are not enemies. They go hand in hand. God's glory is most vibrantly on display when showing grace to sinners. His glory, his name, his honour is most vividly shown by forgiving people like you and me. People who do not deserve it and yet have his grace. So let me finish by asking just two questions. Number one, who are you listening to in your life? Are you trusting in the world 
popular Christianity, the Walt Disney version of God, to, to interpret the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs of your existence, or are you trusting in God and his word? The idea that God is obsessed with us, like a schoolyard crush, anxiously awaiting our response. It's a nonsense. It's not true. That type of thinking leads to superimposing um, what goes around, comes around onto Christianity. Uh, we become very kind of, well, if, I, if I'm poor, God will make me rich. If I'm single, God will make me married. If I don't have kids, then God will get me kids. If I'm married and I don't like it, then he'll make me divorced, so on and so forth. God will give me whatever I want that I don't have at the moment. But that is not Christianity. That is not Christianity. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not, oh Lord, my life is empty, fill me up. The gospel is, Lord, I'm an offense to you, rescue me. And the message of the cross is that we can trust in God regardless of circumstance and situation because God's dedication to his glory and our salvation are intertwined. And how dedicated is to his glory. He killed his own son to achieve it. He killed his own son to display it, I should say. As Job continues, we see that he doesn't continue thinking God is a monster. He comes to understand the truth that God is worth loving no matter what, that our circumstances and situations are not an accurate representation of what God is doing in our lives, but rather they are the effects of living in a sinful world. And yet we can trust God to always work for our good. He has vindicated us. The second question I want to ask you is, particularly for you here today, if you are not a Christian, or if you don't know if you're a Christian or not, or you're not quite sure where you're at, is your faith in what you do or what Jesus has done for you? I want you to imagine uh, as you leave here, um, you get into a, well, don't imagine this, but at some point soon, you leave this earth, you die. And I want you to imagine that you walk up to the, the gates of heaven, not that there are gates of heaven in that way, but just pretend with me, you walk up there and God meets you there and he simply asks you, why should I let you in? What would you say? If your response starts with, you should let me in because I dot, 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 I went to church, I took communion, I was baptised, I was a good person, I was a kind person, I forgave the person who hurt me, I didn't do this, I did that, I prayed this direction, I prayed that direction, I ate this, I didn't eat that, I cut my hair, I did this, I did that. My dear friends, you are lost. You have no hope. You are not good enough. That's the message of Christianity. You are not good enough. But perhaps for the very first time, you already know that. Perhaps you know in your heart that there's nothing you can do, that your sin has been too great. You cannot possibly make amends for the things that you've done. And maybe you've realised today for the very first time that the only answer can be, why should you let me in? You shouldn't. But I'm with him. I'm with Jesus. His death vindicated me. It took away my sin. I can stand before you righteous and blameless. 
And so what I want to say uh, is simply, no matter where you are, whether a Christian of long standing or not sure, trust God and his plan for your life. Put your life in his hands. Repent of your sin today and trust him. I'm going to give uh, everyone here just a moment uh, of reflection, just to, just to think um, about what we've been speaking about, and then I'm going to pray. And I'm going to pray, um, particularly for you if you're not a Christian, if you'd like to put your trust in Jesus today, if you'd like to take hold of the gift that's been offered to you. So just take, take 30 seconds or so now of, of, of silence, of reflection, and then I'll pray. Father, we know we are not worthy. We are not worthy of being in a relationship with you. We are not worthy of being forgiven, of being accepted by you. We have turned our backs from you. We have tarnished your name with our sin. Lord, we have tried to do it ourselves to no avail. We've rejected you. And we're sorry. We understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross so that your name would be glorified. And that by glorifying your name, your goodness and kindness were given to us. That Jesus died to take the sin we deserve. By trusting in him, we may be forgiven. And Lord, I pray that you would do that. that we would put our trust and our faith in you and your son Jesus on our behalf and trust him. Father, forgive us of our sins. Let us take hold of the great promise of Jesus that for those who call upon his name, we will be saved. And let us fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, until you call us home where we may see your glory face to face. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.